in spite of all of the horrible things that are happening in the world today, I think that on the labor front, both in the United States and Mexico, these are really exciting times. Welcome to Labor Solidarity, which is an Empathy Media Lab production, highlighting the work of labor leaders and discussing historic struggles and the importance of organizing to new audiences with the goal of building international labor solidarity. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab, which produces content on labor, political economy, art and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Robin Alexander, who is a labor organizer, activist, and author of the new book, International Solidarity in Action, which tells the story of the partnership between the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America, the UE, and the Mexican Frente Autentico del Trabajo, the FAT, from her perspective as UE's first director of international affairs. Robin, thanks so much for your time. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. So you go into it in your book, but could you talk about your background, how you got involved with organized labor? I guess I came of age sort of at the end of the Vietnam War. So when I got to college, you know, I was trying to figure out what I should do with my life. And I had read a lot of labor history and I thought, oh, well, I'd like to go work for a union. And then I had a chance to go to law school. So I, I did that. And while I was in law school, I worked for a farm worker legal services program in Illinois, and I really liked that. And when I, at the point that I was about to graduate, the Texas Farm Workers Union was organizing down in South Texas, and Texas Rural Legal Aid had a great reputation as being a really hard-hitting legal services program. And so I thought, well, why not, right? I had never lived in a rural area. I don't think I'd ever been in Texas, but I went down there and I just loved it. I had read when I was in college about the UE. There's a wonderful book called Them and Us. And a friend of mine told me that they were looking for a lawyer. So I applied and I got hired. And I guess, as they say, the rest is history. Very cool. Very cool. And why is the UE considered one of the most democratic unions? And there's, there's this great history as, of it being just one of on the forefront of changing the entire culture of union organizing. Well, I mean, because it is a democratic union and, you know, it's, its slogan is the members run this union. And the Constitution helps make it, keep it that way. The officers can't earn more than the highest paid member, for example. Although with overtime, you know, a lot of the well-paid industrial workers probably earn more than we did. And there's no provision for trusting locals. Locals are very democratic. And there's, there's a tradition of really making sure that from the level of locals up to the regionals and to the national union, that workers are educated and that, you know, that slogan is put into practice so that members make the decisions that impact them. And that's really important. 
And so for me, when I was asked if I wanted to become the director of international affairs, being the first one, the challenge to me really was how to do it in a way that was consistent with the union's principles. Yeah. And this is in the backdrop of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Some, some of my audience may have not been born at that time. Could you talk about what it is, what it was, and how it impacted labor? Well, I mean, I think of NAFTA really as being the icing on the neoliberal cake, right? I mean, a lot of the things that you think about in terms of trade agreements were already, you know, in practice. I mean, U.S. plants were already moving down to Mexico. There was already deregulation. You know, a lot of those kinds of things that had a very negative impact on on labor. But NAFTA really sort of made it official and in many ways made it worse. And in the United States, at least, we had some sense of what was coming because there had been the U.S.-Canada, you know, trade agreement, which was a predecessor to NAFTA. NAFTA was bigger because it involved all three countries. Yeah, and it also being signed by Bill Clinton, a Democrat at that time, it's almost like the party in control needs to be the one that sacrifices its constituency to be able to to follow through with it. Because if it was the Reagan-Bush 12 years of neoliberalism, it may have been a lot harder, but because it was a new Democrat, not a New Deal Democrat, I think it's almost like the vampires in the house type thing <laughs> and allows the, the backstabbing as well. There were what they called the labor and environmental side agreements that went with that, which were in a way, sort of a way of neutralizing opposition. And that really did happen on the environmental side. It never happened on the labor side because labor always thought that the labor side agreement was, you know, a sham. And of course it turned out to be. Yeah. So how did you link up with the FAT? And could you talk about how General Electric, one of the great American companies coming out of World War II, ends up moving their plants down to Mexico? And some of the conversations and strategy that you were discussing to figure out how to identify what organizations to work with in Mexico and to how to empower them as well through the UE, which is really focused on making sure every local has a lot of say in what direction they take. Sure. Um, so the, the decision to hook up with the thought really was not mine. I mean, I came to the UE as an attorney and it was in the course of you know, seeing what was happening both before and then later with NAFTA, the UE officers thought there really had to be a different approach, that a lot of jobs at companies like Honeywell and General Electric were being moved by the companies down to Mexico. And 
we didn't have a partner there at that point. You know, there is somewhat of a relationship with the electrical workers union, but that was really because our names were similar. It wasn't a real relationship. And so Bob Kingsley, who was at that point, the political action director, went to a meeting in Mexico to talk about how best to oppose NAFTA. And that was where he first met the thought. And it's interesting because their history is very different than that of the UE, but their approach to organizing and approach to forming unions is very similar. And so, you know, for, for us, we talk about rank and file unionism. For them, they call it autogestion because it's sort of a broader concept because their organization contains different sectors. Not only do they contain unions, but they have some cooperatives. They have popular organizations of families that have fought for services, you know, that kind of thing. And so autogestion is like the same kind of concept, but applied more broadly. And so when they met the thought, you know, it was like, oh, I think we found our partner. The thought was really excited too, because they're a relatively small organization and they wanted to do organizing in the border, but didn't really have the resources to do it. And from the UE side, the thinking was, okay, so we still represent workers in these plants, so we can exert some kind of leverage in the US to help support the organizing in Mexico. And so that was how it all started. The agreement came together really very, very quickly. And it was shortly after that, that the officers asked if I would like to be director of organization. And I said, oh, that sounds really exciting. I'd love to do that. Yeah. So, so incredible. And one of the part two in, and I love the way you lay out the book as well. It's very easily accessible and there's different parts and you go through the history and you provide examples and one in part two, you talk about trying to go through NAFTA's North American Agreement on Labor Cooperation, which is better known as a labor side agreement. And it became a mechanism to try to solve labor issues that are both within Mexico and within the United States. And what's important about this book, too, is that you outline what has worked and what didn't work and being really honest about battles that may have been lost, but that you learned from. Could you talk about that experience where you go through the U.S. government mechanism or the NAFTA mechanism to try to highlight some of these labor violations with GE? And they were almost like, well, you should be happy that we just even are responding to you right now when you bring up this complaint. No, that really was what the reaction was. This goes back a little bit to your earlier question, you know, why GE and how did that all happen? And it's really what I was saying before. We wanted to figure out some campaigns where there was, you know, a better chance of success. And so it had to be something that the thought was able to take on, and it had to be something where we could provide assistance. And so we did 
we did some research, we provided it to the thought, they sort of checked out different plants and sort of came up with the targets. And so they were two plants, a GE plant in Ciudad Juarez and a Honeywell plant in Ciudad Chihuahua. And at that time, you, you may remember that Ron Carey and the Teamsters, it was the new Teamsters, were also, you know, it was a very progressive phase of that union. And so they were partners with us in this effort because they had a Honeywell plant. And so the thought went to work. And what wound up happening was the campaign at GE really took off. And the one at Honeywell, you know, really didn't. But in the end, you know, it's, it's hard to say what happened. But I, I think a really important element was that the thought had never come up against the kind of psychological campaign that is typical in the United States. And the guy who led that organizing, Benedicto Martinez, had had a winning streak. I think he'd won eight campaigns in a row, but he really wasn't prepared for that one. And so up until the very end, you know, they really thought that they were going to win and then they didn't. And part of it was, maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself, but is at that time in Mexico, there were tremendous institutional barriers to organizing and to try and organize a democratic union meant that you really had to go up, you know, against the company in most places, against the government, often against official unions, corrupt unions. And so it really shouldn't have come as a surprise that they lost, but they did. And so at that point, we had to assess what we were going to do. And one of the things that so there were several results from that. One is they said, you know, a lot of the workers in Juarez come from other parts of the country. A lot of them don't know anything about unions, let alone democratic ones. We need to set up an educational center. And so that was one thing that we did or that they did. In addition, you know, they said, you know, we really need to talk about these barriers to organizing, you know, things have got to change. You know, we're winning occasional elections, but that's in spite of the obstacles, you know, we should change the labor law and we need to know, we need to figure out a way to talk about that. And so the challenge under the labor side agreement for us became a way to do that or to help give them a platform in which they could start doing that. Because in Mexico, people thought they were nuts. I mean, this is the way things had been. So this is how they would always be. Yeah. And, you know, so in any case, we filed the complaint, you know, it was accepted, which the National Administrative Office, which is the arm of the U.S. government that was handling these complaints sort of acted like, oh, you know, 
what a great thing we've done in accepting this complaint. And then they made it, you know, really hard and they, you know, they wouldn't allow media in the hearing. They wouldn't allow us to actually put on witnesses and ask them questions. And it was really no surprise, you know, when in the end they said, oh, well, you know, we're not going to do anything with this complaint. And but, it, it was held in Washington, D.C. as well, some of it, where yes, some of the workers were <laughs> pretty Washington. far away. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, yeah. it's it, it just stacked against the whole process. Yeah. So. I mean, they wouldn't have translation. I mean, it was, you know, one thing after another. And, you know, it, it was pretty bad. And, you know, this is sort of a caveat. And again, I'm kind of jumping, but, you know, much more recently, there is a new trade agreement that replaced NAFTA that at least on the, you know, the labor complaint side is way better. And yeah. so, you know, credit where it's due, right? <laughs> um, a broken clock but, can be right twice, you know, a day. <laughs> you know, I like to think that our experience helped contribute to, you know, some lessons in what responsive mechanism might look like because now there is a rapid response mechanism which is handled by the U.S. government and has been used to good effect in some of the more recent cases involving organizing in Mexico. So looking at the template, the worker education is obviously a, a key component you also talk about worker exchanges where American workers going down to Mexico, Mexican workers coming to the U.S. and building that solidarity on that level. Could you talk about that process? Sure. That was actually one of the parts of my job that I found most rewarding because, you know, for the most part, you know, people, whether they were from Mexico or the United States, hadn't traveled outside of their countries before. And so there were a lot of misconceptions, you know, really going in both directions. And so the first delegation was in connection with that GE campaign. We brought GE workers down to Juarez, partly to provide encouragement to the GE workers in Mexico, and partly so that they could see for themselves what was going on and take the information back to their locals and more broadly. That was something that we wound up really incorporating, you know, in our work. And it started off being, you know, just UE fought. And then over time, we included other unions. You know, we did things in different ways. Can I tell a few stories? Please, please. So one of the, one of the things I talk about in the book were a series of public sector exchanges that we called convergences. And those started actually when we brought two women from the thought down. It was in the South because that one of the places UE was organizing was in North Carolina. And that was really a learning experience for me as well, you know, for our, our listeners who may not know North Carolina, it's still illegal for public sector workers to bargain collectively. Yes, in the United States, right? Anyway, so we, we tried to always do things in a binational way. 
And so after that delegation, we were going to bring folks from UE down to Mexico. And by then I'd learned that in Mexico, they'd used international law to challenge some of the obstacles to organizing. And so I thought this could be really valuable. And I asked if the delegation could focus on that, you know, learning from the experiences in Mexico. And since we were doing that, we wound up inviting a couple of other unions from other countries. We had a relationship with Zinruan, which is the Progressive Labor Federation in Japan. The FA had relationships with some of the independent unions in Quebec. And so they joined us also. And it was a fascinating exchange. And it was so wonderful that at the end, the president of one of the unions in Quebec said, we should do this again next year. We want you to all come to Quebec. And so we did that the following year. And that exchange was really focused on the question of health care because, you know, it's really different up in Canada than it is in the United States. But they were experiencing some attacks and wanted to share that experience with us and, you know, learn from other places. And the year after, we wound up going to North Carolina. And I'm going to pause and say that one of the most valuable results of that return trip to Mexico was that some of our members from North Carolina got really excited about what they had learned. And when they went back to North Carolina, they shared the information with their local and we discussed it you know, on the national level also. And we were able to raise some funding to establish what was called the North Carolina International Worker Justice Campaign. And what was important about that was they had realized that the prohibition on collective bargaining, which they thought, you know, it's always been like that, it'll always be like this, in fact, was a violation of international law. And so, you know, they had rights and it was the state that was acting illegally. And of course, that was tremendously empowering. And so that was really going on by the time, you know, the, the convergence meeting took place in North Carolina. And we used that our legal de department had put together a complaint to the ILO about, you know, the violation of international law. And so we used the occasion of that convergence to actually file the complaint and, you know, serve it or attempt to serve it on the governor. Anyway, from there, we went, the last country we went to was Japan, which was fascinating because that sort of added in a whole other element of, you know, the question of war and peace and you know, they were very much concerned about, you know, the use of nuclear weapons, which, you know, certainly seems that they were right to have that concern. And after that, we sort of analyzed to all of us together where we should go from there. 
and we decided that we should, you know, take a step back and really go back to the local level and work on establishing connections, you know, between locals, really focus on that. And so that was what we did. And in March of 2007, UE workers from North Carolina and Connecticut went down to Chihuahua to a, a little place called Guerrero. It's a small city. And the workers there were public sector workers, and they were in the process of building their union hall. So a few months later, they invited one of those workers to come up to Connecticut. And so we went around touring, you know, public sector, public works garages. And, you know, I learned a lot about trash and recycling and some other things, but one of the things that happened on that trip was really critical for us. We were just sitting around a table and it wasn't very many people. And Danielle was the name of the worker who had come up and, you know, he was talking about, you know, how he had come to be there and his job, I guess. And someone asked him if he had ever been in the U.S. before. And he said, oh yeah, you know, I were, I used to work and I don't remember the state, but he had worked there and, you know, so that people were kind of saying, hmm. And so then someone asked the follow-up question that I think a lot of people think about, but very few people ask because they're sort of too polite to ask, which is, well, why did you go back? Because there's sort of an assumption that if people come to the United States, it's because they want to stay forever. And he said, well, you know, because my wife and kids were there and I really wanted to be there, you know, for them when they were growing up and I wanted to be with my wife. And so when this job opened up with the city, you know, I went back and, you know, there was like this moment of silence and you could sort of see everybody going, uh, huh, because of course that's what you would do. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that story circulated around, we had a statewide, have a statewide local in Connecticut, and it circulated around. And the last meeting we did was, it was the statewide <clears throat> convention. And so at that convention, and this was completely unbeknownst to me, no one had talked to me about this before they did it. They offered a resolution that was approved I think unanimously to support the workers in building their hall down in Guerrero, Chihuahua. And they were going to do it by something that they called a buck a brick campaign. And so they had these pieces of paper with, you know, pictures of bricks on them. And so for every person who donated a dollar, they'd give them a piece of paper with a brick. And so they launched this campaign and they managed to raise a fair amount of money, both from their local and then, you know, they reached out to their region and nationally. And then at the following national convention, they gave a check to the FOT representative to take down to Chihuahua so they could build the next section of their union hall. I just want to say that 
that story had a lot to do with how our members in Connecticut viewed the question of immigration, because it was a point in Connecticut, you may remember this, where there was a real strong backlash against immigrants. And, you know, our members were immune to that. Yeah, it it just takes a few personal relationships to be able to throw out the entire de like demagoguery of being able to try to scapegoat a certain group of people. And that exchange is why it's so, so important as well. And you also talk about art and culture in the labor movement and just even having a mural and things like that can help with the exchange, help with raising consciousness and build that solidarity. And could, could you talk about how that came about as well? Sure. I, it was one of, one of the things I loved about my job was that you could tell it inspired me, but it also inspired other people. And, you know, the UE never had much in the way of resources. And so, you know, I was always sort of thinking about, you know, what opportunities there might be and how we could get things done. And, you know, I was approached by a really wonderful labor muralist from the United States, Mike Elowitz. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed by your work. I love to contribute in some way. I don't have money, but I paint murals. And I thought, hmm, now there's an interesting idea. And so Benedicto Martinez was sort of my counterpart. He was actually an elected leader. I was staff, but he had been designated by the leadership of the fund to coordinate with me. And so I got in touch with him and said, well, what do you think about this idea? And, you know, we sort of tossed it around and in the end decided that we thought it was a great idea, but that because we did things financially, we should actually have two murals and two mural artists and that we should pay them the same and, you know, some other things. And so we presented that to the leadership of both of our organizations and they said, you know, go for it. And that's what we did. And so the thought eventually found an artist in Mexico who was really amazing. His name was Daniel Manrique, and he was a community self-taught muralist, although he later became actually very well known and respected. But when he was first approached by the thought, he turned them down. He said, no, I won't work for unions in Mexico because they're terrible and they're corrupt and they're, <laughs> I don't know what exactly he said, but the answer was no. And, and so Benedicto said, but we're not like that. And the UE isn't like that. And, you know, come to our office, talk to us, learn about us. And once he did, he said, okay, I'll, I'll do this. And so the first mural was done in Mexico City. Mike came down and it's this fabulous mural. And I could tell you about that, but you can read about it in the book or look at the pictures in, in the book. But the part of this story that I, I've never forgotten is that when it came time to 
you know, inaugurate the mural. The FOT had this big celebration, and in addition to lots of workers, they had sort of the left intellectuals and, you know, lawyers and I don't know. There were a lot of people there and they had a cake and it was quite the event. And they had arranged for um, videographers to document the occasion. And, you know, they asked me beforehand what I wanted them to do. And I said, well, you know, go around and ask people what they think about the mural. And so it wasn't until I got back to my office, you know, and had a chance to look at some of those tapes that I realized what had happened. And it, they had done exactly what I'd asked. They went around and interviewed people and asked them what they thought about the mural. And I had, I guess, expected people to respond by talking about the mural itself or, you know, they liked the theme or they liked the colors or whatever. But nobody talked about the mural. They all talked about sort of the relationship of solidarity and the importance of working together. And I mean, I was I was practically crying by the time I finished listening to this because it was, you know, it was person after person after person. And they were all giving these really eloquent extemporaneous speeches. And it it was really moving and it really, you know, taught me about the importance of art and incorporating culture in a movement. Yeah. So you also talk about the, I'm, I'm trying to look it up, the Tri-National Solidarity Alliance. And I'm I'm so interested and we're, we're going to move to kind of the future of organizing in this interview and the importance of international solidarity and, and, and working together internationally as workers because international capital is very, very, very highly organized in finance and, and elsewhere. So what was the Tri-National Solidarity Alliance? Well, what happened, I mean, it's, it's, it came about because we we were the UE was one of the first unions to have what I would say was a meaningful relationship with a union in Mexico. But you know, as time passed, we weren't the only one. So for example, the steel workers established a very close relationship with the Mexican Mine Workers Union. The CWA had a relationship with the airline pilots. And so, you know, so the the scene nationally and internationally was really quite different than when, when it was when we started. And in Mexico, the situation was changing, you know, within the country too. And there was a real increased attack on workers. And so it was directed, I mean, it was directed against workers across the board, but some of the main targets were the mine workers and the the SMIT, the Electrical Workers Union. They were a, a very progressive union and essentially the government eliminated all of their jobs and, you know, wound up taking over their workplaces. And so although 
unions in the United States and to some extent Canada had been coordinating informally, the increase in the oppression in Mexico was such that we couldn't deal with it anymore. It was like, you know, too intense. And so there was a meeting that was put together by the Global Union Federations, actually, in Toronto. And they invited everybody to come in. So there were representatives of unions from Mexico, a few of us from the U.S., and, you know, some folks from Canada. And it was a relatively small meeting, and we talked about, you know, what was going on and what we should do about it. And we came up with what we called the, I think it was the Toronto Declaration or Proclamation or something. And essentially, we condemned what was going on in Mexico and said that we would work together to support democratic unions in Mexico. And it just happened that from there, the U.S. Social Forum was taking place in Detroit. And we haven't talked about this, but, you know, one of the things that we were very much involved in was the whole World Social Forum process, partly because, you know, it was a very progressive and energizing effort to present a counter to what was happening in Davos, where all the you know, capitalists were coming together to plot and scheme billionaire class exploitation, right? And so this was our alternative. You know, how are we going to come together and create a better world? You know, was the framing yeah. of it. And so it had started in Porto Alegre, Brazil, and then moved to different places. And for us, it was an extraordinary opportunity because as I said, you know, we didn't have a lot in terms of resources. And this was a place where people really came together, lots of different organizations and unions. And so we could all meet up. But in any case, there was going to be the first of the U.S. social forums in Detroit, you know, and it was a few days after this meeting in Toronto. And so we had proposed what was the largest kind of session there. And because a number of the Mexicans were already in Toronto, we were able to put, you know, put together a program. And so we drove from Toronto to Detroit and, you know, we had this wonderful meeting and discussion. And in the end, there was, we what we did became part of the final outcome, which was that people at the U.S. Social Forum committed to supporting the work of unions in Mexico and fighting the, the government in what they were doing to destroy the independent unions. And it sort of became a question of, okay, so operationally, how do we do this? And we wanted to create something that was cooperative in nature that didn't in any way attempt to replace any of the existing organizations and that was respectful of the fact that 
not everybody could do everything and certainly not always at the same time. And so what we created was called the Trinational Solidarity Alliance. It was composed of unions from Mexico, the United States, Canada, and Quebec. And in Mexico, it was handled, you know, by in-person meetings in Mexico City because most of the unions were based there. For us, we did conference calls and then we coordinated. And we also coordinated with the global union federations and subsequently they sort of merged to form. The one we worked with most closely was Industrial Global Union. And the, the global union federations had called for global days of action. And so we organized the, you know, Mexico, U.S., Canada, Quebec piece of that. And, you know, we did lots of other things, you know, in, in the course of, you know, the existence of the Trinational Solidarity Alliance. And it really did have an impact in getting the Mexican government to back off some, you know, it was successful in getting some of the jailed union leaders released from jail. It gave the SME some breathing room, you know, so that they could kind of reorganize. And eventually they wound up forming a cooperative that was recognized. So it had a very positive impact. And I should say that, you know, the woman who had recently become the director of the Solidarity Center, Lorraine Kluwer, played a really important sort of bridge role because she was in Mexico and was able to sort of provide what was a neutral meeting space for people in Mexico, because not all the Mexican unions got along either. Yeah, yeah. And so it was really a very wonderful, very positive experience. Yeah. So resources is obviously one of the great challenges in organizing. And I had the privilege of being able to go to my first AFL-CIO convention in Philadelphia in June, and then with the Labor Radio Podcast Network, and we interviewed you know, 30, 40 people there, and then went to Chicago for Labor Notes, and also was able to interview about 30, 40 people sure. there. And it was night and day difference in energy, in approach, in strategy. And did you get support outside of the UE with, and you, you have discussed some support, but did the AFL-CIO ever help you out? I know Solidarity Center is a part of the AFL-CIO, but was, what was the relationship with AFL-CIO during this process with NAFTA going on and labor generally being supportive of the Democratic Party? You know, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, because relationships are both institutional and individual. My experience, I knew from early on that there was no way that the UE could go it alone or that the thought could go it alone. I mean, we, and that was very much the experience of the thought in Mexico. They also had participated 
in various alliances, you know, over time. And so I tried to be as open as I could be and as concrete about what was needed as possible. And because solidarity is such a important principle within the labor movement, it was generally possible to get, you know, sign-ons from unions to support whatever it was, you know, because if workers are under attack, you know, generally the response is positive. But in terms of actual work, my experience, and I don't think this will come as a surprise to you, is it came from rank and file members. It came from staff who were more progressive. You know, it came from our participa participation in organizations like Jobs with Justice like labor notes, you know, we were very active participants and, you know, that was, that's where the energy came from. That's where the, the ideas and the, you know, momentum came from. And in terms of money, you know, it's amazing how much you can do with how little you know, if you're creative and you have people who are supporting you. I mean, you don't have to stay in fancy hotels. You can stay at people's homes. You can, I mean, you get the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with the remaining time we have left, taking a step back and in an ideal world for myself, we are at least in a balance between the owners of capital and the workers and that there's at least a balance in that power dynamics. And then that, and it happens within the United States. And then our foreign policy is also holds our corporations, our transnational corporations within the United States accountable. So if a factory collapses in Bangladesh, it's going to be the people on the boards that in the corporation registered in the United States who are going to be accountable, even if it's five degrees separated through different contracts and uh, subsidiaries and things like that. And what I'm interested in, Mexico has a history of having state-sponsored unions. I believe China does as well. Yet at the same time, I think a lot of the workers there are still going to see the same problems workers around the world have since the beginning of time. And you bring it up in the book right at the beginning saying that you know, FAT is a progressive union going against the PRE or PR political party, which is a part of the union, or the union's a part of that. I'm just really, really curious about how we can create this international solidarity, even in countries that have unions embedded within the governments as well, and, and to, to be able to try to support a, an international solidarity movement. Well, I mean, it's, it's a complicated question, and I don't, you know, I don't know that there's an easy answer to it. I mean, our answer in Mexico was that, you know, the union that we partnered with was not part of that, you know, corrupt system, right? And we were very fortunate to have come in contact with the thought and then together we were able to 
build something that was really much greater than, you know, either of our own organizations. And what's interesting, I mean, we really haven't talked about the labor law reform, but the labor law has been reformed in Mexico, removing a lot of the barriers that had existed, you know, when we first started. And one of the things that's really interesting now is that there are new actors on the scene. There are some new unions. There's a new provision in the labor law that existing contracts have to be legitimized. And there's a whole process for going through that. And if they're not supported by at least a third of the workers, then you know, there's a possibility of an election. And that's happened in a number of places. And most recently in a huge San Goban plant, I don't know if there's been any information about that in the U.S. There was a plant, a GM plant in Silao a few months back, and I know there was a lot of publicity about that. And so I would say a couple of things about this. You know, it's very encouraging. But there are also a lot of unknowns. I mean, because some of these actors are new, we don't really know. You know, they, it's one thing to talk about having a democratic union. It's quite another thing to put that into practice, particularly in a place where that's not been the regular practice or operational system. And so all of that remains to be, to be seen. But I think it's a very hopeful time because at the very least, workers are in movement and they're winning against what was, you know, unquestionably corrupt system. You know, so that's, that's very positive. In the United States also, we're seeing an upsurge in organizing, which I think is just tremendously exciting. You know, from Amazon to Starbucks, the UE has been organizing grad workers. You know, most recently there was an election of, you know, a huge workforce at MIT, and graduate students. They won several elections in units in New Mexico. I mean, so yeah. and it's newspa an newspapers time. and media as well. So hopefully a lot of these workers are going to start encouraging stories on these type of issues as well. So it has a great feedback loop. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I, I don't want it. I don't want people to be pessimistic. I think people act if they have the hope that they can really accomplish something. And so in spite of all of the horrible things that are happening in the world today, I think that on the labor front, both in the United States and Mexico, these are really exciting times. And, you know, I'm sorry I'm retired now. I mean, it's, it would be, it would be a lot of fun. <laughs> and and so I hope people out there, you know, do get involved in organizing. And so, so that's sort of a roundabout way of answering your question that in Mexico, it took a long time. I mean, it was 20 years from the time that we first began working until, you know, we really saw some of the institutional changes in the system. 
And all of the time, you know, workers continued to fight, continued to try and change things. And, you know, the result has been really, really positive. That doesn't mean there aren't still obstacles. Of course there are. Of course there always will be. But, you know, it's like one foot after the next, right? You got to get in there. China is more complicated. I actually went to China because I wanted to try and figure out if there was a way to work with unions in China. And at that time, you know, unfortunately concluded that there really wasn't. That doesn't mean there never will be or there isn't today. So I want to read just a couple sections that I really appreciated within your writing. And you write, unions are one of the most important democratic institutions we have in our society, and hopefully they'll rise to the occasion. International solidarity must be a piece of this new strategy, and we must stand together if we are going to have any chance of success. And one other part, as with organizing, each campaign is different, and a successful organizer is able to build on established practices and experience while maintaining the capacity to analyze each situation and operate with the creativity an initiative that is required. So Robin Alexander, I really appreciate what you've done in this book, capturing the history, providing a path forward going for, for us. You've carried the flame through some of the difficult, most difficult years in neoliberalism, and we still have the flame going as we, we move forward. So I really want to thank you so much for your time. And I, I will direct everyone to uh, your website, internationalsolidarityinaction.org, where they can download the book for 99 cents on Kindle or for a slight donation. And even if they don't have any money, then they can even download it for free. So any last thoughts, Robin? No, I, you've left me speechless. It was my hope in writing this book that it would, you know, inspire people like you. So so thank you. Ooh.